You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, well, we're going to cut to the chase this morning, just kind of jump right in uh, to things. I want to do a quick recap of where we've been, because last week we just started a, a new series called Disciple, and uh, Rodney had cast a vision for what this new space means for us, that it doesn't just mean that we have like a cozy new you know, home with 4,000 subwoofers above my head, and we kind of soak that in. It's more than that. It's, it's that, but there's something else happening here. What we're doing here is, uh, is we are seeing this place as our new base for mission, that, that this is the place where, where we are doing something in our community for the glory of God. And so that uh, demands we answer the question, well, what's the mission? What are we doing? And the what of that is this. The way that Rodney talked about it last week is uh, the mission of our church in this new space and as this congregation is this, that we are about making disciples. That's, that is what we are saying we are going to be about as a church. That's what we are on mission to do. And, and so that demands another question, right, that Rodney answered last week, which was, okay, well, what is a disciple then? We've got the mission. Now we know it's about making disciples. Well, what is a disciple? And here's how we're defining it. A disciple is someone who is becoming more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about this morning. You want to know what it means to be a disciple? It means that you are a person who is seeking to become more like Christ in how you think and how you act, how, how you move in this world, how you engage people, how you engage God in every area of your life, that you are seeking to become more like Jesus, and you're doing all of that through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about when we're saying that you're a disciple. That was at the heart of last week's sermon. We're defining our terms we're kind of set, setting our stage, establishing our, our bullseye, what our church is going to be about. And so, but there's more to this series. There's five more weeks. And so what are we doing in these five weeks? Well, if we've established now that the bullseye for us is making disciples, that's what we want to be about as a church, there is now a final question that comes up, right? And that question is, how do you do it, right? How do I make a disciple? I got a, I've got a definition of it. But now I, I need some type of measuring stick that I could hold up to myself and to my brothers and sisters to where we could say, are we growing into the image of Jesus or not? Like, is that something that's, am I making disciples or not? Am I becoming more of a disciple of Christ or not? How do we gauge that? We're, we're trying to answer the how of that this morning. And the way that we've done that as we search God's word is, is we've boiled it down to uh, essentially five categories or characteristics or, or attributes that make up a disciple of Jesus. And that's what these next five weeks are about. They're, they're detailing each of those five categories. So here they are for us. Uh, the first one is this, that a disciple enjoys Jesus. Two, that a disciple needs the gospel. Three, a disciple lives in community. Four, a disciple multiplies and five, a disciple embraces risk. Okay, so if you want to know where we're going over the, the next five weeks or so, that, that's where we're headed. Each week, we're going to grab one of those themes, one of those truths, and we're going to press into it and see what it means for us, what the Word of God has to say about it. Are we tracking? Yes? Fantastic. Okay. Uh, and this week, we're grabbing that first attribute uh, and running with it, and it is th this, that a disciple enjoys Jesus. 
Now, if you were to lock me in a room for 10 minutes with a person, and you were to say, you can talk about anything you want to with them, this would probably be the thing that I would be talking about. I, I think it's that vital, that important for us as a church. It, is, it has been the thing that has radically changed how I engage with God. Like, coming to terms with this truth has meant everything for me in my walk as a disciple. So I think it's really important, and I'm excited about getting into it. On the other hand, I think as soon as you say a phrase like that, a, a, uh, a disciple enjoys Jesus, I feel like as soon as that's said, we're automatically uh, in, the, in the space of confusion. I feel like it's a, it's a confusing thing to talk about like that. Um, just when I say it, I feel like it, it, it needs definition and clarification, and, and it's a little bit muddy. Um, like, what do we mean when we say a disciple enjoys Jesus? I don't know how that hits you when you hear that, but for me, it, it, it hits, it's only, it's like, it feels so like hipsterish to even talk about it, like, oh, I enjoy Jesus. Like, is he a BLT? Do I take a bite out of Christ? Like, what am I doing? What do I mean when I'm saying I enjoy Jesus? And then, like, I have other questions, right? Like, okay, I enjoy Jesus, but, but how do you enjoy somebody who's not, like, here with me? Like, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? And here we are on earth. And so how do I can understand how to like uh, enjoy people around me, but the distance thing, how do I make sense of that? And, and even if I can make sense of that, I have the, just the, the problem with like how to practically do it. Like do, w- when you say, uh, you know, enjoy Jesus, do, do you mean like squint your eyes and, and, and like try to squeeze a, a warm fuzzy out of your system? Like, like I gotta feel something. Like what is, what does it mean? right? To enjoy, or, or here's the, here's maybe the, the bigger question, the more important question. It's like, why even talk like this at all? Like, is this, is this not just another way to say a disciple loves Jesus? This is like the cool way to say it, right? And, and if not, then why is it important that you and I understand uh, our relationship to Christ in terms of this word enjoyment? Why does it, why does it matter to understand things in those terms. I think there's probably a couple reasons why when, I, when I'm talking about, when we're talking about enjoying Jesus as disciples, why that might strike you as kind of odd or maybe a little bit difficult to understand right, right out the gate. There's a couple reasons, I think. One of them is this. Maybe you've just never heard it put like that. Maybe uh, the way Christianity and uh, Christian discipleship has been articulated to you has just not been that. Those haven't been the, the words. In fact, I, I would venture to guess this, that, that probably, especially in, in like Southern Christian culture, probably the way most of us have heard things like the gospel or Christianity articulated is something like this, that uh, somebody might say, well, what is Christianity? What is this thing we call, you know, uh, life with Christ, it's, it's something like this. People sin, and they do bad stuff, and they're headed for hell. And then Jesus came, and he, and he died for them, that, so they wouldn't have to go to hell. And if you believe in Jesus, you won't have to go to hell too. And in the meantime, until you die, you know, figure it out. The end, right? <laughs> right? I mean, like, that's a really uh, crass way to have put that, but like, at, at its most fundamental uh, level. Isn't that essentially what we hear in our culture? Like, if you were going to 
If you were going to have somebody explain it, it's that. But what is that? Well, it's a skeleton, isn't it? It's not the whole thing. It's the meat and bones. It really isn't there. It's, it's emaciated. It's, it's, it's not all that it could be. Here's the thing. What I just said is not untrue per se, right? We are sinners. Without Christ, we are headed for a life without him and an eternity without him in hell. Jesus did come and die for his people. And if we trust him, we are freed from that life and from that afterlife, right? That, those things are, are true for us. They are true. It's just that there's so much more truth that hasn't been told in that. And I just wonder in a room this big, how many of us, that's, that is our working definition of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, to live in this thing we call Christianity. That might be you, and that might make it difficult for you. Uh, or maybe that's not you. Maybe for you, you've been in a church context like, like this one uh, that has done a, a better job of helping fill out the meaning of what it means to, to know God, what it means to be a Christian, that it's not the skeleton, it's the, it's the full man. And, and, uh, and so you have the right working theology, but for you, practically, your experience as a Christian is radically different from that, right? So you have the right news up in your head, but when you go to just live Christianity in a day, it just feels like a grind, man. Like you wake up and it's just like all you can do not to go back to bed, because you know I just... I've just got to do all this stuff, and you're trying really hard to be a Christian and to believe the right things and do all these things, and it's exhausting. And, and if you're honest, it feels more like you're just employed at like a really dull job, right? And this is not what you feel like you signed up for, right? So maybe that's you, and I don't know, but, but the reality is most of us are in, in one of those two camps, uh, a lot of the time, a lot of our Christian life. A and uh, I think that's because most of us, e either in our thinking or in our practi practice, we suffer from what I'm just calling Little Mermaid theology. Just go with me, okay? Little Mermaid, third greatest Disney movie of all time, obviously. Second, being Aladdin, first, being Lion King. That's a no-brainer. It's not an argument. It's, not, it's just a fact, okay? It's in the Bible. Little Mermaid, right? Ariel, she's got some friends. She's got a friend named Scuttle. Remember Scuttle, the, the seagull? Caw-caw, that guy, right? He, uh, he is uh, that wise sage that she always brings her little doodads to, and she has him pontificate on, on what they are and their function, and then she takes them back to her little lair. It's kind of creepy, that whole thing, right? Okay, so Scuttle, right? And at one point in the movie, if you remember, she comes to him, with a shiny, four-pronged, handheld metal object, right? And she holds it up to him, and she wants to know what it is and what it does. That's what she does. And she gives it to him, and he looks at it, and you remember what he says, right? He looks at it, he says, ah, uh, oh, it's a dinglehopper. Humans put this in their hair, and they give it a little twist, and they pull it out, and pwah, voila, you have an aesthetically pleasing hairdo, Right? I don't know why I know that dialogue, but I, it's, it's deep down in me somewhere. It was a dinglehopper, except it wasn't. No, my friends, Scuttle was a liar. Spoiler alert, it was a fork 
And I suppose you can use a fork to comb your hair. That is one thing that a fork can do for you. That is true. But it isn't the primary purpose of a fork. A fork's primary purpose is not meant for brushing, right? It's meant for feasting, isn't it? A fork is meant to feast with. And the same, I think, is true of Jesus. We have misunderstood the primary purpose of Jesus' coming and living and dying and rising for us. We misunderstood it. We have it twisted. So let me say it like this. Jesus, listen, did not come just to save you. Please don't leave the church. I, uh, let me flesh that out. I chose my words carefully. Jesus did not just come to save you. He came to save you, right? That happened. It's, it's in the Bible. He came to save you, but he didn't just come to save you. There's a more primary purpose at play. Jesus didn't just come to save you. He came to satisfy you. He came to satisfy you. That is his primary purpose. Listen to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now listen to what Peter's saying. Is he saying that Christ didn't suffer for sins? No. It clearly says he did. Christ did suffer, and he suffered Four sins. Four is a purpose statement. He suffered four sins, but then he gives an additional purpose, a deeper purpose. Why did he suffer for our sins? That he might bring us to God. That is the punchline of the gospel. Our forgiveness was never an end in and of itself. It never was. He never intended just to pardon us and make us not go to hell. That was not the the point. That was a point. It was a glorious byproduct, but the prime product is so that we could, in his dying for us and rising for us and removing the curse of our sin for us, that we could have no more obstacle of our sin as we move toward God forever enjoying him. He took away the roadblock of my sin so I could have unlimited access to God forever. The punchline of the gospel is you get God. That's what he's doing. That's what he came to do. Or, to say it another way, Jesus saves us to satisfy us. He saves us to satisfy us. I want to show you what I mean by uh, sharing a little bit of my own journey with this truth, with enjoying Jesus, this idea, because I have uh, really misunderstood things for years as a Christian, and it almost made a shipwreck of my faith. Like, it, it almost wrecked me uh, entirely. So I want to give you a little bit of context. As far back as I can remember, <clears throat> I've, I've always struggled with any number of addictions. I remember fourth grade, nine years old for me, that was my first exposure to pornography, and that began for me a decade-long uh, addiction to that, that, that wouldn't resolve until well into college years. And, and, and it was an addiction. It had me by the throat. It was ruining me. About that same time, I had dealt with a lot of uh, 
overeating, gluttony-like issues. I was a really self-indulgent guy. So that by the time I'm getting to high school, I'm about 260 pounds. And I'm, I'm not saying numbers to shame anybody. Numbers aren't everything. We know skinny people who are gluttons too. I'm just saying like for me, I was a really overly indulgent person. And whatever I could get my hands on, I just went to the max with it. And, and it was devastating. I was disobedient to God in so many ways. And they manifested in, in some of those ways. And then I met Jesus as a sophomore in high school. So now I'm 15 at this point. And I, and I collide with the gospel. And my friend explains to me for the first time that, that though my sins are an offense to God, he has come in Christ to bear that offense on himself. That he took my penalty, he removed the curse from me, and as I trust in him, I get accepted into the family of God. That curse is gone. I don't have to fear hell or God's judgment. I get to be in heaven with him forever. It changed my life, right? 15 years old, that happened. And, and I'm telling you this because it was wonderful. And yet at the same time, if I'm being honest, man, not a whole lot changed uh, as it pertained to my struggles, like some of the littler issues did, like I saw those being dealt with and, and Jesus was helping me, but in the ones I really wanted to get rid of, I kept fighting them and fighting them and, and I just, nothing changed. And it seemed like every time I punched, it would punch back harder and I was trying what I thought to be every trick in the book, so to speak. It was not for lack of trying that I was still crippled by my addictions. It was so exhausting. Do you know that feeling? Like surely somebody knows that feeling. It's just like, I, maybe even as I'm talking about sin right now, something's coming up in your mind and you're going, I, that is so me. Like I've, I just can't best it. It's just, it feels like, like it's got chains all on me and I felt that so uh, acutely and it seemed like there was nothing I could do and then as I got to college I, I started to notice a, a change happen but what that change uh, was linked to was I, I, I decided at some point you know what I had never read through the whole Bible I just want to do that so I just started working my way through scripture starting in Genesis working through the Old Testament and, and going on like that and as I started sitting with the Bible, God began to blow up my paradigm. And I began to realize that I've been, I've been misunderstanding how even God frames the, the issue that I have. Let, let me tell you what I mean. So I don't know if uh, you've spent much time in the Old Testament, just, just reading it. It's a, a oh man, I, I love spending time in the Old Testament. I also feel like the whole catalog of books should just be retitled the, the book of human train wrecks, right? Because it is a mess, right? You get two good chapters out of that puppy and it heads south really quick, right? Adam and Eve, they violated God's covenant. They spurn his command. They want to go do their own thing and they do and humanity just spirals. We watch as we read the spiraling down of humanity, the violating of God's law after God's law after God's law and it's Adam and Eve and then, and then Cain with his brother Abel, he kills him and then it, it keeps working through these individuals' lives and it's just a mess and then it moves from individuals to, to nation states and, and, and you start reading about the sins of these groups of people, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amor, all the ites, right? They're all a mess, right? But the, the biggest mess in your whole Old Testament, the biggest mess is the people of God. It's Israel. They are a train wreck. Like every moment 
that, that I was reading these stories and, and, you know, we hear the children's version of them and, and it sounds so great and you watch the Prince of Egypt and Moses comes down with the tablets and Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston are singing the song. It's amazing. <laughs> but it didn't happen like that, right? He rolls up and these guys are bowing down to their earrings that they melted into an animal, right? And they're worshiping what, what's happening, right? And it just kept getting worse for me as I'm reading. I'm seeing more violations of God's law. You get to Judges. Have you read the book of Judges? It is like a, it's like a religious version of Groundhog Day, where every chapter just starts the same way. Right? And then the Israel sinned in the sight of God. And so God sent the Hittites to destroy them. And Israel cried out to God. And so God sent this judge to rescue them. And they were rescued. And all was well in the land. Chapter 2, then Israel sinned in the sight of God. And God sent the Amorites to kill I mean, seriously. I mean, it's, that's how the book reads. And it moves from judges to kings. And the king, guys, the kings, like, like, so bad so dark like the sins that are happening with among the people of Israel we're not just talking about like I coveted my neighbor's goat bad right that's bad don't cover your neighbor's, your neighbor's goat but but we're talking about like like setting up prostitutes in the temple of God we're talking about like the people who are leading the people of God, taking their own children and throwing them into an open fire to sacrifice them to the God Molech. That's what the people of God are. So that, that commentators in scripture on this period would say that they sinned more than all the other nations around them. It was a messed up time. And so you can imagine my anticipation as I get to the prophets because the prophets just ain't having it, man. They just smack everybody in the face and tell them, stop it, right? And I needed some of that. I needed somebody to bring a charge against these people because it was a mess. And I was ready for the laundry lists of crimes to be laid out and for God to just spell it out in legal terms. But the terms he chose to use, I was very surprised by when I got there. And this was one of those pivot points for me. I remember getting to Jeremiah. And when you get to Jeremiah, you're not two chapters in uh, before God frames the sin issue of the nation for the people of Israel. He wants them to understand how he sees what they're like. And here's what he says. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils against me. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns or wells, broken wells that cannot hold water. Isn't that fascinating? God could have, God could have framed it any way he wanted. He could have talked about their sin any way that he wanted. And the way that he chose to communicate what their sin was to him was not in terms of judicial law, but in terms of appetite. He looked at them and he said, you want to know what your sin's like? It's like this. I'm like a spring of fresh water. And you refuse to be satisfied. That's what your sin's like. And instead of drinking deeply from me, the only one who can quench your thirst, you go and you dig muddy holes and you drink the slime and the sludge. You want to know what your sin's like? It's like that. I 
and here to satisfy you, and you don't want to be satisfied with me. It's like A.W. Tozer says, God stands there waiting to be wanted. You know what? If we're honest, we don't want him. That is the sin behind the sin. That's the sin behind the Ten Commandments that we violate so often. It's us looking at God and saying, I know that you say you satisfy, but I don't believe you. But I think this might, and this might, and she might, and he might, and so I'll go do that. That is sin at its core. It's choosing to find anything other than God to be satisfied in. And so is it any wonder if that's how God frames the issue for his people? Is it any wonder that when we get to the New Testament, that the first couple things that God wants us to know about Jesus are this, that he was born in a town called Bethlehem and he was born in a manger. Now, why, why does that matter? Well, what does the word Bethlehem mean? Does anybody know? know what it means in Hebrew? It means house of bread. And what is a manger? Right? A manger, isn't it a feeding trough for animals? So, so go with me here. Think about this for a minute. The first thing we find out about Jesus when he rolls onto the scene is this, that he was born into the house of bread, born into a feeding trough. You think he might be trying to tell us something about himself? And then for the rest of his ministry, he starts saying the wackiest things about himself. He starts calling himself stuff like living water. We've heard that before. And new wine. And my personal favorite, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Why wasn't I seeing change in my life? Why, why did I keep fighting it? I saw no progress. Why was that? I think it was because I couldn't see that my problem wasn't primarily a legal one, but my problem was an appetite. That in our disobedience, in our lackluster affections, the problem is mostly that we're not hungry for him. That we want to feast on anything else. And when I saw that, everything changed. Everything changed. I, I started sitting with God in his word and, and like taking him up on his promise to satisfy. And, and, and he started to leap out of the pages at me. I would sit with him and... and, and, and his promises started to sweeten in his character and his, his person and his attributes. And I'm, I'm, as I'm watching him here, something's happening in me. That, the best way to describe it is I just, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm getting filled, like I'm, I'm feasting. And, and by the end of that meal, I started to notice I wasn't as hungry for the stuff I was chasing before. And, and, and it was like two weeks without me getting on the internet to look at that stuff. And then two weeks turned into six weeks and six weeks turned into six months. And, and that was over 14 years ago that that happened. And look, that's not saying like, go Jimmy, look what you did. It's saying God is satisfying. That he comes to satisfy us. The, the, the way we get free is by feasting. It's ironic to me that 
that the way that God dealt with my gluttony was by giving me bread. But that's what happened. He gave me bread. And look, I've got a billion other problems and idolatries that God's working with me on. This is not me saying I've got it straight. I Trust me, I'm a train wreck. Come and meet me afterward, right? But the way he's dealing with me on all of these is that way, by presenting not just a set of rules to follow, but a person to treasure. A meal to dine on. That's what he does in the gospel. And when we do this, when we see him as the most satisfying being in the universe, you know what it does? It makes him look like the all-satisfying, supremely great God that he is. Or to put it like Piper puts it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's what we're talking about. So if this is true, that enjoying Jesus is central to the life of a disciple, how do we do it practically? Now, now we're talking about the, the how. Like how do we make progress in that? Let me just give you three practical ways to fight for this in your own life. There's so many things to be said about this. This is by no means exhaustive. These are just three things that I felt like the Holy Spirit was bringing to my mind as I was trying to make sense of what have been helpful for me as I've, as I've been uh, walking with Christ, learning to enjoy Him. And so here's, here's three for you to, to marinate on. The first one is this. Make space to enjoy Him. Make space to enjoy him, right? This isn't, this isn't brain surgery. This, if Jesus really is a person to be enjoyed and not just like a system to be affirmed, then, then just like with any other person in your life, it takes time to get to know him, right? To fall in love, to become an enjoyer of him. I have to sit with him. I have to be with him. That takes time, and time requires space. And man, that's one thing we don't have, right? <laughs> you know, for me, th- here's w- a couple ways it looked. Uh, in college, I made a decision my freshman year that uh, I, would, uh, I would just not open a textbook until I opened the scriptures. That for me, one of the commitments to protect myself from that slow fade into disinterest in God. I just said, before I do any studying or homework, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit with God first. I'm going to open up the word and, and feast first. And man, it changed my life. It was amazing. These, these times that, you know, I was going to get to such and such a thing, uh, and I'll just take a little moment here, turned into one, two hour sessions of just dining on the word of God and having him speak to me. And somehow in the midst of all this, I, I passed college. It was amazing. Uh, but, but the thing I want you to hear in that is not that Jimmy was sitting on a mound of time and he was like, what do I do with all this time? I guess I'll give some time to God. It wasn't that. It stung because I had work to do, but, but it was a decision made in faith that said, I'm going to trust that it's better for me to feast here first. And it was radically helpful in my walk with Christ. It was one of the most shaping times in my life. Lately, I'll tell you one of the things that we're doing lately, me and Kelly, my wife, uh, we do this once a week. We just take one day a week and we fast, right? Fasting is, is 
commended in Scripture. It's commanded in Scripture. And, and, and we, we do that once a week. And it's, it's not to score brownie points with God. It's not to like, make him or you like us more or be more impressed. It's not that. It, it, it's simply to do this. It purchases for us some real estate so we can have more time with him. Right? That I'm not going to a meal three times a day. I'm not snacking during the day. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take more of those moments and put them towards spending time with him. It also does this. It reminds me, as I feel those hunger pangs, it reminds me that I really don't live on bread alone. I get to tell my body that the thing I need most in the world is not a snack. It's Christ. That's what we do when we fast. That's what we're doing. Uh, Piper, again, it puts it in, in his book, Hunger for God. I think this is such a helpful quote, so I'll, I'll quote it for you now. He's talking, uh, Hunger for God is a, a book on fasting. He's talking about why we lack that hunger, that ambition for God. And he puts it like this. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, right, if that's you, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied it is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for great. Do you, do you, do you feel that? Do you hear where I'm coming from? Like, that, that to me resonates, because I feel like I stuff myself with all sorts of things, with entertainment, with social media, with Netflix, with food, with sleep, and by the end of it, don't, I just feel like I come to most of the ends of my day and I'm like, I can't even, <laughs> there's no more room. I'm out, I'm out of space, right? So uh, that's why I have to make this the first one. Let's fight to make space for him. Do you want to enjoy Jesus? Maybe the most Christian thing you could do today is find a way to clear your schedule this week. Maybe it's the, the most Christian act that you could perform this week is to go, where's some time that I could take to clear that away so I could gaze at my Savior. That's the first one. Number two, don't just run from your sin. Run to your Savior. Don't just run from your sin, run to your Savior. This was my problem, right? What I was doing, I had a lot of the right disciplines in place to protect myself from certain sins and like to avoid going back to those things. I was setting up the right parameters. I was running from them, but I was running into nothing. And here's the thing about the human heart. It was designed to want and to love and to, to respond and to enjoy. And if I'm enjoying this and I stop, I've got to find something else to enjoy. Or else I'm just going to go back to that or to something else that's not God. But the scripture is clear. It never commands us just to leave. It commands us to leave and flee to Christ. 2 Timothy 2.22, right? Flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with others who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We flee from and we flee to Thomas Chalmers, the uh, Scottish pastor, he puts it like this, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one, which means that if you want to be free from sin, if you want to have a heart that, that loves God, what you need to do is replace a lesser love 
with a greater love. Don't just run from your sin, run to your Savior. Does that make sense? Here's the last one. Believe the ones who've enjoyed before you. Believe the ones who've enjoyed before you. What do I mean by that? Well, you know what I'm tired of? I am, I am so tired of being okay with this little sliver of Christ that I serve myself, right? I, I'm just tired. I want more. I feel that over this past year in particular, I've just felt like an ache for more of him. I'm grateful for that. I think that's the work of the Spirit. I, I feel that. But can I tell you the, the, the catalyst for that, what has prompted that feeling? I'll tell you what it was. It, it was reading about other people's enjoyment of God in Scripture. I've just, I, I've, I've grown discontent because I'm reading the, the, the book and, and I'm, I'm reading the testimonies of Moses and, and David and Isaiah and Mary and Elizabeth and John and Paul. And, I, and they're telling me he's better than the best thing. He's better. And, and my heart is just going, I want that. Don't you want that? Like, that's not like a thing that was relegated to like thousands of years ago. You know, we can have access. We have better access to God now than Moses had. And it said that he spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. We have the veil entirely removed. Jesus has taken away the veil and given us full access to the presence of God. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could taste more of that? And you know what can make us discontent? And it's good to be discontent with this. What makes us that is by seeing other people's stories, seeing their experiences, getting to hear from their own mouth, say he's better. He's better. And the way we do that is by sitting in his word. That's how we get to hear their stories. It's the best way I know to grow in a holy discontentment. And so with that said, I, I want to do that. I just want to end today by having us listen to some of those testimonies of the saints who've gone before us in hope that it's going to awaken something in us, like a discontentment in us for where we are now. And it, it, it will produce in us uh, a hunger to sit with God and get more of Christ. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple? One thing I've asked, how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed is the one who dwells in your house, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. For whatever things were gained to me, those things, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So come. Everyone in thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich Let's pray. I'll just give you a minute to let the Word of God do its work. Father, I really want a, a holy discontentment. I want to be dissatisfied with how much I have of you. I want to grow in enjoyment of you. And, and God, I'm asking for this flock right here, would you help us to grow in a, in a holy discontentment that we are unsatisfied until we get more of you, Jesus? And God, I realize that this prayer means that it probably is going to cost us something, energy, time, space, opportunities. But Lord, will you do the, the harder work of convincing us that you are better than all of those things. You are better than the best things. 
I pray that you'd bring tears to us. I pray that you'd break us. I pray that you would show us that in our sin we're doing more than just breaking your law, God. We are refusing to feast on the one who calls himself bread, the one who says, I'm like a meal to you. God, would you break our hearts for that? We want to be disciples. We want, we want to be changed to, to the image of Christ. And we know that only happens through enjoying you. So God, would you help us enjoy you? Where we don't want you this morning, God, we're saying we want to want you. God, even as we sing these songs and these words go up to you in worship, may you cause our hearts to catch up to the words that we're singing. We want to believe that Jesus is better than anything. We want to marvel at the name of Christ. Would you produce that kind of heart in us today? In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.